0: This coming Thursday, September the 22nd at 10.04 p.m., mark that, 10.04 p.m. Summer will have ended, and that moment, 10.04 p.m., will mark the fall equinox. That means the sun will be setting astride the celestial equator. Last year, our son, John, went down to Ecuador to see the Galapagos Islands, which are right on the equator. And like millions of tourists, he sent back a picture of himself with one foot north of the equator and the other foot south of it. That is what the sun will be doing on September the 22nd at 10.04, one minute before that it will be in the southern hemisphere, one minute after in the northern. The days and nights will be of equal length, 12 hours of each. That is what equinox means. Equal nights and days, of course. Explaining all of this is getting to be a habit that I need to break Bobby asks me to be here every year the last Sunday of summer and the last summer before fall. Every year when everybody is at Mo Ranch splashing around in the river, (laughs) I get to be here (laughs) preaching about fall. I thought about just preaching last year's sermon. But what if somebody remembered it? <laughs> not likely, I grant you, but occasionally <laughs> Not likely, I grant you, but occasionally people tell me they remember something about one of my sermons. I don't remember saying what they say I said, but maybe I did. <laughs> so here we go again. It's the summer, Sunday before fall. Sunday before the fall. Equinox. Actually, you already know that I like being here, and the changing of the seasons, the movements of the sun, and the moon, and the stars, and other astronomical phenomena has always interested me. From childhood, watching the skies has always captivated me. And if I didn't want to talk about the equinox, there are plenty of other texts and topics I could have chosen. Next year, if I'm at Mo Ranch and Bobby is here, he can preach about something else. (laughs) Today, you're getting a sermon about the fall equinox. Are there not 12 hours in a day? Jesus once asked. It must have been at the time of the spring equinox, and in fact we know it was, because he said that just before his death in the springtime of the year, about the time of the Passover, when the days and nights are of about equal length. But soon the days will be getting shorter. And to people who lived in ancient times, that was a terrifying realization. I thought of that last December when we were in Britain traveling through the Salisbury Plain near Stonehenge. The people who assembled there thousands of years ago, whoever they were, would have understood the significance of this day. Because that is one of the functions that Stonehenge has. One of many functions we don't understand, marking the times of the seasons the summer solstice, the winter solstice, the spring equinox, the fall equinox. On September 22nd, the people who built it would know that summer had ended, that winter was coming on, and that thought filled them with fear and foreboding. No more food could be grown. How would their livestock be fed. How would they feed themselves? The nights would soon be long and cold. The wolves would be out. Not a comforting thought. I don't suppose we have much to worry about, not even with these rising prices and lengthened food chains and all the rest of it. The supermarkets will have something to eat, not the specialty items we want perhaps, perhaps not even some things we really need. But somehow I expect we will get by. I don't think the wolves are going to be out. And here in Texas we should be warm enough. Although one never knows, we certainly weren't warm enough February, a year and a half ago, you may remember. So the nights will certainly be longer, but perhaps there is a blessing in that. For one thing, the longer nights remind us that not every problem can be solved quickly and easily or the result of conscious effort. Some problems have to be thought about. Either that... They have to be left alone. Now, I know how that goes against the grain. If I know anything about most of you, it is that if there's a problem, you want to solve it. Now. (laughs) Most people are like that. Presbyterians are like that, especially. (laughs) Strike while the iron is hot. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Let's get a committee together. The thing has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Let the middle be as short a time as possible. Let's get started and get to the end of the problem. There are 12 hours in a day, Jesus said. So while there is light, you must work. Well, he's right. While there is light, we ought to be working. Working on a problem has everything to recommend it. But some problems can't be solved just by working on them. They have to be thought about, they have to be given time to rest. If fruit trees are going to bear fruit, they have to have time to rest. And the long nights and the colder weather help them do that. It is the same with fruit we are expected to bear. Walter Prescott Webb, perhaps the greatest historian of the American West and professor of history at the University of Texas, took 30 years to write his magnum opus, called The Great Frontier. For 25 of those years, he didn't write anything. (laughs) He could be seen sitting at his desk with his feet propped up on the desk, staring off into space as if he were doing nothing. What are you doing, Professor Webb, someone would ask. I'm writing The Great Frontier, he said. (laughs) But before I write anything, I've got to think about it. I need time to think about it. The sun knows it's time for setting. I don't know how long it took me to realize that. I don't know how much time I wasted laboring over a problem that I wasn't able to solve, that I wasn't ready to solve. It needed time. And time is exactly what I was unwilling to give it. But time passed, has a way of doing that, you know. I got older, hopefully wiser, and now I am able to do to think about certain things more creatively and productively than when I wasn't ready to think about them. You know, we talk about the loss of memory and getting old and all that sort of thing. Uh, those are things we need to be concerned about. But something else might be going on too during the longer nights of our lifespan. Perhaps we're thinking more faithfully or more creatively about life than we were capable of doing before. There is another set of implications here relating not so much to our intellect as to our emotions. It is very good for us to lay aside the passions of the day and to seek the moderating influence of the night. That is precisely what Paul is telling us here in the book of Ephesians. Put off your old nature which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful lusts, he says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let me repeat that. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for edifying as fits the occasion that it may impart grace to those who hear. And above all, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered why the Jewish Sabbath begins at night, not on Saturday morning, but on Friday evening? I love how the book of Genesis puts this. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and morning... One day, not morning and evening. Evening and morning, one day. Evening and morning, a second day. Evening and morning, a third. The day begins in the evening. We might do well to remember that. During these longer nights, we might do well to consider that. Pascal, the great French philosopher and mathematician of the 17th century, once said that many of the evils of the world would be prevented if during the day people would stop and be quiet for 30 minutes Well, that is difficult to do during the day. It is difficult to stop and be quiet during the heat of the day. It is difficult to put our interests and our passions aside during the heat of the day. During these longer nights, we might be better at that. John Silber, another philosopher, (coughs) excuse me, and educator of our own time, once said that the greatest gift any people ever gave to civilization was the Jewish Sabbath. Can you imagine, he asked, the good that has come from resting one day of the week, evening and morning. The first day of the week. How many quarrels have been avoided? How many animals have been saved from being worked to death? How many people have been saved from being worked to death? Recalling Paul. How much evil has not come from our mouths, but only such as is good for edifying, that it may impart grace to those who hear. How have we not grieved the Holy Spirit because we have one day of rest, evening and morning, one day. Well, last, there is this. There is a sense in which God cannot be rushed. Concerning the things of the Spirit, there are some things which cannot be pressed. It is better to pray about them and wait for them and let God deal with them in God's own way. I don't know of any better example of this than the experience of John Wesley. For years as a child, as a student at Oxford, as an ordained priest, as a failed missionary to America, as a failure returned to England, for years he drove himself to gain a sense of redemption that was not his to earn. Finally, one night, note that, one night, he went quite unwillingly to Aldersgate, and there his heart was strangely warmed. He felt that he really did believe, and that he really was saved by God's grace. Now, what happened? Something that Wesley did? You know, we and our Methodist friends have been arguing about this for... Well, as long as they've... We we were here first, you understand. (laughs) But as long as they've been here uh, since Wesley's time. Free will versus election, which which is more operative, which is more important, which comes first, all that sort of thing. And Wesley could get pretty hot about that subject. He strong advocate of free will, strong critic of what he regarded as uh, oh, Calvinist predestination. So what happened at Aldersgate? Something he did out of his own free will? No. He went quite unwillingly to Aldersgate. That was all he did. It was something that God did. So was all that work a waste? Was all that effort for naught? I'm not prepared to say that. I'm not God. But what can be said is that God was not going to be rushed into giving Wesley what he was so feverishly and desperately working to achieve. On a lighter note, and perhaps it is the lighter note we ought to be sounding here, I once knew a woman who had a problem which was literally worrying her to to distraction. It's a very common problem, which was going to resolve itself. Everybody knew that. Everybody knew that but her. But, of course, when it's we who have the problem, we're the ones who are being worried to death about it. She had tried everything. And nothing was working. finally, in desperation, she told me, that she was going to give the problem to God for two weeks. <laughs> and if God didn't do something in two weeks, she was going to take it back over. Well, God is his own timekeeper. <laughs> But do not ignore this one fact, the scriptures say, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow about his purposes, as some count slowness, but is forbearing toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." One of my favorite poems is Goodbye and Keep Cold by Robert Frost. It's about a farmer who's leaving his orchard in the winter. It is not the cold he's worried about. It's not the long nights he's worried about. His orchard needs the long nights. His orchard needs the cold. It's that unexpected warm weather that he's worried about. I don't want it stirred by the heat of the sun, he says. No orchard's the worst for the wintriest storm, but one thing about it, it mustn't get warm. He has done all he can do. And now this last line of the poem. Something... Has to be left to God. <laughs> yes, leaving something to God is a very good thing. <laughs> something for us to think about and to be grateful for on these longer nights. Amen.